Bill Parcells was a Hall of Fame uh, football coach. He coached the Giants, the Patriots, and the Cowboys. And one thing that he is famous for saying is when a coach is barking at you, yelling at you, telling you what you're doing wrong, it's a good thing. When you should be worried is when a coach isn't saying anything to you at all. Because that means the coach has stopped coaching you, stopped caring maybe, or at the very least stopped thinking that what he's saying is producing the desired results in you as a player. You need stronger methods. Two weeks ago, the Apostle Paul unpacked for us sin, that sin is not the way it's supposed to be. Sin is an unraveling and undoing of creation. It's chaos brought to order. To the very good that God created, it is the very bad. And it's what we repeatedly do. We want the destructive things that we do. They are not just accidents or mistakes. We really are that cruel, while at the same time, oddly, sometimes tender. We're loving, but also just as likely to break love, scorching it up, knowing, knowingly, for the fuel of something more exciting. And we're suppressors of that knowledge. Like, when we're alerted to this reality, instead of confessing and repenting, we suppress. We suppress knowledge about God, about us, about our world, and we do this through denial. We deny God, His Word, His invisible attributes seen in creation. We deny that He's king, or we deny that He's good, or that He has any right to tell us how we are to live. And this leads, ultimately, Paul says, to delusion, thinking we are wise, we're actually fools. That's the great exchange for us. That's the story of us. This is us. Now, here at the beginning, don't lose the plot. If you were madly in love with one another and you lived a life by daily revealing that love to a beloved, and that beloved kept rejecting you, even as you kept giving and displaying that love. Not only is your beloved rejecting you, but your beloved is finding love in the arms of other lovers again and again and again. We could think of biblical examples like Hosea, Hosea's faithful love for his wife Gomer, and she becomes enmeshed in affair after her affair, eventually prostituting herself. The Bible says this is us. It's Israel in the past. It's us in the present. In the book of Romans, he's speaking of the Gentile story here, all non-Jewish people. This is the story of the Gentiles, Paul says. And so Paul asks, how is God's wrath revealed when we are promiscuous in our loves, pervasive in our idolatry, persistent in our rejection of him? What does God do in the here and now? In verse 18 of chapter 1, there is this present tense verb. The wrath of God is being revealed. God's wrath will fully be revealed on the day of judgment, which the Bible speaks of. But in this sense, God's wrath is being revealed in the present. How? Here's the key to Paul's argument this morning. The wrath of God is revealed in the here and now in that he gives us over to what we most want a life without him. 
He turns us over and over to a life without him. It's like George Bailey's story, you know, from It's a Wonderful Life. George is given the gift of what life would look like if he had never been born. He is turned over by Clarence the angel to that reality. Here, Paul gives us a glimpse of our story without God. Our story given over to the desire of our hearts. A coach who stops talking and lets us have it by giving us what our suppression of him has asked for. Non-him. That's what Romans 1 teaches. We don't want you, God. And God says, this is what life looks like without me. Paul starts here by saying, therefore God gave them up three times. Verse 24, 26, 28. And notice each time the phrase is used in response to something. Therefore, for this reason, since... God's wrath is revealed against the ungodliness of men by giving them what they most want. God gives us the idols we chase after. He gives us over to the desire of our hearts. And it's a, it's a profound concept. Now think about it. We tend to think of God's wrath as lightning bolt from the sky, as God raining down fire and brimstone on sinners. You're used to preachers saying, because of our sexual immorality, God is going to send a tornado or an economic crisis. But here we see the wrath of God now. His ongoing judgment against our rejection of him is found precisely in his not intervening. So, sexual immorality is God's wrath. He lets men and women Go their own way. John Stott put it like this, God abandons stubborn sinners to their willful self-centeredness. God judges the world by giving people over to their selfish desires. He takes his hand, so to speak, off the wheel and lets us drive. He lets us indulge our sinful appetites. Now, you can think about this in terms of God as Father. Part of a good father, uh, good father's desire is to restrain the bad desires of his children. If I did not restrain my children, they might eat Oreos for every meal. They might play Xbox for 24 hours in a day. They might drop out of school. And, of course, none of these things would be for their good. These things would lead them the wrong way. Restraint is an act of love. So God is saying that judgment, his judgment against those who reject them, him is to let them eat all the Oreos they want for as long as they want and see what happens. I want you to pause for a second and listen to me. All the things that you most want and long for in this life, even the things that might be good, but you want too much, those things are going to fail you. They're going to let you down. They are going to, they're never going to pay out what they promise you. It is not true that if you get more money, you will be happy and satisfied. 
You're built for more than that. It's not true that if your children have amazing academic success or athletic success or just familial success, that you will be happy and satisfied. You're built for more than that. It's not true that if your spouse finally meets all of your needs, emotional, sexual, otherwise, if she meets or he meets all of their needs, that you'll be happy and satisfied. You're, you're made for more than that. It's not true that if you were seen and heard by your boss at work or by your parents or by that boy or girl in your class, that you would be happy and satisfied. You're made for more than that. We don't believe it. We don't believe that that intoxicating drink or hit or click or look or thing won't satisfy or will stop satisfying. So what happens? Well, they fail us, but we keep going back to them. And some of you know what this is like. You've struggled with substance abuse. You know it's not going to satisfy you, but you don't know what else to do, so you keep at it. You're sad, you need to stop being sad, or you're happy and you need to stay happy. And this can be many things, many different ways to cope with being sad and or happy. You keep going back to work or your cause or your purpose, even though it leaves you empty, tired, and depressed because you think this time, this time I will stay on top or get to the top or when I'm at the top, it will all be worth it. Or you're always striving to the top as the secret sauce of your life. Or you've been unfaithful to a spouse, and you know the horrible and crushing guilt that attends to that, but you're trapped in this idolatrous pattern, and you keep going back to that dry well looking to get filled. You've been in positions of power, and you've taken great vacations, and you've received professional accolades, and yet, at the end of the day, when you get home, you still feel empty inside when you're by yourself or when you're with others. But you don't know what else to do, so you keep pushing and working yourself into oblivion. The wrath of God is writ large over all our pursuits and passions. We really are counterfeiters. The, the bad money that we make, the fraudulent money, the counterfeit drives, the good money out of circulation. The false gods that we worship create and render the true God unbelievable. So we get gladly exchange the authentic for the fake. We're all like out there on the New York streets, vendlers petting, peddling Rolexes and Kate Spade purses and Nike shoes, but they aren't really Rolexes and they aren't Kate Spade purses and they aren't Nike shoes. And deep down we know this, but it doesn't matter because the heart wants what the heart wants. We want status. We want experience. Even donning the handbag that's fake because if they're donning it, it gives us the things that we're after. In the last battle, the book by C.S. Lewis, he captures this. A lion skin is thrown over a hapless donkey. And when that happens, what was intended does not happen. The Narnians actually stop believing in the true lion Aslan. And Lewis writes, Tyrion had never dreamed that one of the results of an ape setting up a false Aslan would be to stop people from believing in the real one. This is us. 
It's the vital point to our idolatry. We take the good, we make it ultimate. The good gifts of God become the very places we set up counterfeit gods. It's what we do. And what happens to our world as a result? Well, kind of part two of what we talked about two weeks ago is disintegration, the withdrawal of God's gracious aid, his life-giving presence leads to corruption. Where we are bent on resisting God, God gives us over like Pharaoh hardening his own heart against God, God hardens Pharaoh's heart as well. Like Ahab insisting on going to war against God's will, God drives Ahab to disaster. If we continue to believe a lie about God, God will obscure the truth. At first, the lie is more important than the truth, and in the end, the lie becomes the truth. And the punishment for all of this, sin, is more sin. God turns us over. And because of God turning, uh, giving us what we mo- what most want, a life without him, things fall apart. Life disintegrates. Culture disintegrates. And so Paul here is showing us the gravity of a world that has been given what they want, a life without God. Now look how he lays it out. First, we see the disintegration of human sexuality. Dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, verse 24. Dishonorable passions in 26 and 27. One of God's greatest gifts to humanity is sexuality. A close, intimate, physical, spiritual, emotional bond and connection between husband and wife. Intimacy, being seen and known, being naked and unashamed. Yet, we want sex on our own terms. And what's the result? Sexual perversion, sexual abuse, sexual deviancy, pornography, adultery, homosexuality. A disintegration of human sexuality, a mire of misusing our own body and other people's bodies. Now, here, Paul, and I want you to hear this, signals out homosexuality. He does not do this from a moral vantage point, not here in this text. He's not trying to say anything about homosexuality being worse than other sins. He's using it as an illustration of theological error. He wants to make clear that homosexuality is forsaking the natural relationship of a man with a woman and a woman with a man, which was instituted according to the purpose of God as creator. God made us male and female to reproduce and fill the earth, to leave father and mother and cleave unto each other. This is his design. And so to exchange that for male to male or female to female sameness is against his theological creation. So Paul argues theologically that homosexual relationships for both men and women reverse God's purpose, changing something originally oriented to the opposite sex as a complement, and inverts it to itself. And this is undoing the created order. 
Paul is standing on theological grounds against the moral current of his audience. Now, here's where it often gets misunderstood. He is writing here about a Gentile world to a Gentile audience, at least in parts. In the Greco-Roman world at this time, homosexual practice was regular and affirmed. It was a normal part of life in the world, practiced in several acceptable and unacceptable ways. This matters because this tells us that this command isn't time-bound, old-school, culturally conditioned. It was a wandering from the truth of God's intended purpose for human sexuality and flourishing. Homosexual practice signals a departure from the norm of God's creation, defiance against the Creator, and indicative of our lostness in sin. To suppress the truth about one God, the God who made the heavens and the earth, leads to a rejection of God's design for sex as a means of partnership and procreation between men and women. This is a hard word. It's a hard word in our day and time. It was a hard word in Paul's day and time. And if you sit here this morning struggling with the attraction to the same sex, it can feel particularly painful and hard. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my life beyond today? Will I always be alone? The fall has truly broken everything. Sex and relationships are a part of it, part of that. Consequently, our desires are impacted, our minds, our hearts. If you struggle with these desires, you are not alone, you are human. And Paul is making clear the distortion of sin, the counterfeit it creates and markets. But he isn't saying this sin is worse, uh, as, worse than another sin, as much as he's saying this sin articulates what sin does. It distorts, it undoes, and you feel that in your own body. You feel it there. And the call in your own body is to trust God and his word and what he offers that it is better. It might not always feel better or seem better all the time. It may, in fact, call you to a life of singleness and a life that in your mind at this moment is just loneliness. And that may be too great of a pain for you to carry, and yet Paul does not stop. He is clearly saying the alternative is not the design of the child of God. This is the way the world is rejecting God and God's design. I could say much more, but this isn't the only distortion of human sexuality. We distort human sexuality when we have sex outside of marriage. Marriage was created as a covenant, a place of safety to bear up the weight of being naked and unashamed. And when we give ourselves to others outside of that, we experience that alienation from our very own bodies and from someone else when that relationship ends. That is also a distortion. Now, friends, in all of this, there is grace and mercy. 
We'll talk more about that as we move towards the end. But here, Paul says, God's wrath is revealed in the disintegration of human sexuality, and God turns us over to this distortion. We also see the disintegration of emotional life. We see these words filled with and full of littered in these verses. Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a deprived mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. The word for depraved means failing the test. Calvin, the theologian, drew attention to this, and he said this is the noetic effect of sin. Sin, before sin affects behavior, it affects our thinking. Our very thinking processes, our choosing, our picking, our deliberating, our deciding mind is affected by sin because of the fall. Trusting our minds then in our rationality or our ability to be unbiased or to think our way out of it is a misnomer. Or to look at God, the things of God in his word and say, well, that doesn't seem quite right or fair. Like, this is what we do. We don't like what someone says, so we ignore them. We suppress what they say to us. We fight back. And sometimes we're too sick. Our minds are given over to sin and are, in a way, recoded. So much so that we continually want to give ourselves over to this habit over and over again, because our brain has developed these deep ruts. So it's very much not just like some mystical thing, but it's actually a very physical thing. We find ourselves responding to pain and the decay of relationships around us with different coping strategies that make these deep pathways in our brain. We can't make sense all the time of what we think or feel. We overfeel and we underfeel. There's things where we, we should feel deeply our emotional life and we can't. It's stunted. And there's places where we feel way too much about life and it sends us cataclysmically in all kinds of directions. This is what sin does to us. It breaks us. It fills us. Paul says, with unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. These are the roots. Unrighteousness and evil and coveting, they are the depraved roots. They are the reason for God's wrath, the turning over. They are followed by five nouns, qualified by full, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. In other words, we don't make things right. We make things only right for us. We want what we can't have or don't have. We murder in thought or in action. We lie about it, and then we stir up strife and we hate. The roots of unrighteousness, evil, coveting, and depravity cause us to do all of these things. And it doesn't stop there, right? In our current cultural moment, if we just look around, does that not describe who we are? And then it's followed by 12 terms describing various acts of wickedness, all featuring a wordplay in the Greek. What does a deprived mind do? Well, we see the disintegration of sexuality, we see the disintegration of emotional life, and we see the disintegration of human relationships. We gossip. We commit pornography of the mouth. 
where we objectify another person and with words we gossip about that person as objects. Titillated by what we are saying about that person, we get all the pleasure back and give nothing to the object that's being described. We slander. We say things that aren't true about someone else intentionally to undermine what they're saying that might be true or might be against what we think is true. We hate God. Paul isn't pulling punches here. He says the disintegration of human relationships is we hate one another through gossip and slander and we consequently hate God. Man made in the image of God intended to be a image bearer, a little statue, a life animated statue of God in the world. When we speak ill of man, we end up slandering God and show that we hate him. We are insolent. We're, in other words, rude. We're disrespectful. We're haughty in that we think we're superior to everyone else. We're boastful. We can't stop talking about the things that we do, the things that we love. We invent evil. We don't just commit evil, but we invent new ways of being evil and doing evil. And then right there in the middle is we're disobedient to our parents. It doesn't seem to fit. But Paul makes a connection in that the order that God has set up in this world is that parents become the covenantal heads of their children And in some sense, when parents speak true words, we are rejecting God in rejecting their true words. We're foolish. We do things that are described in Proverbs that the fool does, always finding his way back to his sin, like a dog who eats his own vomit, that's the path that we, we go. We're faithless, heartless, and ruthless. In the end, Paul says, we have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And sin fundamentally is a negation of our humanity. It takes away our ability to know. It takes away our ability to trust. It takes away our ability to love, to empathize with others. It erodes what's best about us, that we are made in God's image. And in the end, we place ourselves in judgment over God and remove God as judge and place us in his dock as the judge. We will be the ones that make the approvals now. We will determine what is right and wrong. This is our world. We have made it. That's why when Nietzsche said that God is dead, what's often forgotten about in that quote is Nietzsche is trying to say, you better understand what you're saying when you say God is dead. Now Nietzsche believed that, but he also knew that that would take care, take rid of, get rid of all the things that their culture had been built upon up to this point. 
And to knock that all out meant that there's nothing that exists that has any meaning. Nothing that exists that has any purpose. Nothing that exists that isn't just really a power play and survival of the fittest. In the home of Rufus in Rome, this church would have known what Paul was talking about, both inside the home and outside in the streets. And we do too here at Copper and San Mateo. We see it in our own hearts, in our own homes, in our own lives, and we see it all around us. This is our water. It's what we swim in, and God allows it. Why? Why does God do all of this? Why does God show us his wrath in this way by giving us over to it? First, know that God's wrath is the response of his holiness towards evil. In Romans, righteousness, that word that we see over and over again, is God's goodness to fix what is broken, to rectify, make right what has been made wrong. God's righteous indignation against those who undermine his reign, who feed their desires, who seek to abuse and to hurt. And by the way, we can get behind the abusing and hurting piece because that's the one ethic in our culture that we still somewhat believe in, that you can't abuse or hurt anyone else, and if you do, that truly is evil. But we reject all other concepts of evil other than that. And Paul says, yes, all that's true, And it's because God is righteous and can fix what is broken and can undo those who have been abused and hurt that God's righteous wrath is revealed to a world undone and disintegrated by sin. God's wrath is God's rectifying work. It is His work to fix what is broken. It is His work to put what is right and hold people to account. And God's wrath is always bound up in God's mercy. God exposes us to the disintegration of our sin so that we would turn to him. His mercy comes before his wrath, just like the song that we sang before I got up here. His mercy precedes his anger. It's like a cold bucket of water hitting you in the face when you've been numb. Like in the Princess Bride when Fezzik brings Vincent back to life with buckets and buckets of water. God gives us what we want to show us that nothing can bring us joy or peace, really. Nothing can change the darkness of who we are. Nothing can fill the hole in our hearts. Nothing and no one can undo what has been broken except for God who is for us in Jesus. God is merciful because God sent his only son to be a propitiation for our sins, to be an offering, to be a sacrifice, to pay for all this disintegration. God satisfies his own justice and placates his own wrath by expunging our sin through drawing its deadly consequences away from us and on to Jesus. 
and taking us instead into the life and union of the triune God. This is the gospel. God's anger is meant to lead us to repentance. It is his kindness to us. We understand the nature of God, sin, and salvation when we realize that all of us, at one time or another, have gratified the cravings of our flesh, followed its desires and thoughts, and like the rest of nature, Paul says in Ephesians, we were deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. It is by grace that you and I have been saved. Uh, my, most of you know that my aunt, uh, who is nine years older than me, was um, a drug addict. Her name was Carolyn. She was super dear to me and to all of our family. She was the life of the party. She made everything fun. And when she was a, a young woman suffering under the weight of uh, abuse that was done to her, she started using cocaine. And when I was a teenager, she got clean. And um, I started going with her to uh, AA meetings and NA meetings as a teenager. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget sitting in a room with a bunch of addicts and hearing them confess that apart from God, they would have no ability to ever break free from their addiction. And my aunt was clean for a long time. I remember going with her, and she received pins and keychains and trophies and told her story over and over again about how she was rescued from addiction and abuse. And then her second husband broke her heart. The husband that was supposed to be like this great man of God who worshipped at a big church in town and was a bigwig in the city, when he treated her horribly, she spiraled. And when she spiraled, she started dating another guy that used, and they basically spent 10 to 15 years using in his home and his life. Her relationships with her kids were disintegrated. Her children want nothing to do with God. And at one point, somewhere in there, my family had to decide that we couldn't help her anymore. That the only way for Carolyn to get help was for her to be turned over to the natural end of her disease. And it ultimately took her life. Now, what do we do with that? Is that the best way? I don't know. I know as I preached her funeral and I read from her Bible that no matter where my aunt was lost in her addiction, she, was, she did not lose Jesus. She wrestled with Jesus till the day that she died. God turns us over. He wants us to come back to him. His forbearance and patience is meant to lead us to repentance. 
The heart of God is for us to see where our sin brings us. And that's certainly what we were hopeful for with my aunt. To have a a moment of complete disillusionment with the path that we have chosen and to come home. To know that he welcomes us through Jesus. To know that it's by grace that we have been saved. For whose sake did Jesus hang on a cross? For yours, for mine. For your sake, Jesus became our sin. For your sake and out of love, he was burdened with suffering and shame. For your sake and for your life, he was nailed to the tree. And God wants you to realize the real darkness he is saving you from in Jesus. And so that is the picture Paul is painting here in Romans 1. As God turns us over to sin, that we might see the ramifications of sin in all its darkness, that we might cling to the reality that God saves us in Jesus. So this morning, embrace him. Don't let your sin keep you from embracing him. Don't let the consequences of all the choices you might have made this week or today or last week keep you or make you think as you suppress the truth of God's loving kindness and your unrighteousness and lostness that God doesn't love you, doesn't extend open arms to you, isn't continually pursuing you, offering life to you through his son. That's the story, even amidst the bad news, is the good news Jesus is there. Come to him. Run to him. Believe that his words are the truer words spoken over your life. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us today. Help us to see your redeeming love in the midst of our unrighteousness. That you are God, hell-bent on redeeming us. You are the hound of heaven. You are searching us out. Even as the world and as our lives sometimes have been turned over in our sin, even that is a kindness to us to recognize the weight and the gravity and the cost and turn to you. To help us to come to you, come to the table this morning, needy, grateful. For it is by grace that we have been saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.